This is the Responsible Sports Podcast, presented by Liberty Mutual. Episode number 44, Jimmy Conrad. Responsible Sports is a program dedicated to supporting coaches and parents who help our children succeed on and off the field. Each episode, our host, Jim Thompson, Executive Director of Positive Coaching Alliance, will be joined by some of the most influential players and coaches to share their thoughts and experiences with responsible coaching and responsible sports parenting. In this episode, Jim Thompson, founder and CEO of Positive Coaching Alliance, talks with former MLS and Team USA player Jimmy Conrad. It's a really neat feeling and, and, and fun to see that all this hard work when nobody is watching uh, pays off when everybody is watching when you're on the field. So uh, it's, it's pretty incredible. Jimmy shares the importance of putting in hard work when no one is watching so you can excel when everyone is watching. He also provides advice to coaches and parents from his firsthand experiences. Jimmy, I want to start off by introducing you to our responsible sports audience. Jimmy Conrad was born in Southern California and attended Temple High School, I'm sorry, Temple City High School, where he lettered in soccer four years in a row. He played two years of college soccer at San Diego State University and then transferred to UCLA where he was part of their 1997 NCAA champion team. Initially undrafted by the MLS out of college, Jimmy played for the San Diego Flash of the A-League. In 1999, he was signed by the San Jose Earthquakes, then called the San Jose Clash, where he played for four seasons, winning an MLS Cup in 2001. 2003, Jimmy was traded to the Kansas City Wizards, where he won MLS Defender of the Year honors in 2005. In 2007, he became the Wizards' captain, and he stayed with that team through the 2010 season. He played his final MLS season for Shiraz USA in 2011. While playing in the MLS, Jimmy also played for Team USA, getting his first cap against Cuba in 2005. He played in the 2006 FIFA World Cup in Germany and remained part of the national team through 2010. Since his retirement from playing, Jimmy has worked for YouTube channel Kick TV, has worked co written columns for Sports Illustrated's website and ESPN.com, and has served as host on multiple radio shows. Jimmy, thanks for joining our responsible sports audience and me today. Thanks for having me. Uh, I've got a little tear in my eye. I'm waxing nostalgic with all the fun stories you just said about my life. Yeah, well, it was, it was quite a quite a career, and um, I guess uh, we all we all get older as we get older. <laughs> exactly. Did you play other sports um, when you were growing up besides soccer? I did. I played baseball, uh, and I figured out at around age ten or eleven that it was a little bit too slow for me. That I needed a little bit more fast pace. I wanted to be a little bit more in control of what was happening. I didn't pitch, so I wasn't involved with every play and. Uh, of course, what also helped was that I had a coach, a soccer coach, who told me that it was time to make a decision, that if I really wanted to be good at either sport, baseball or soccer, that I needed to start making it a full-time commitment. And that was at what age? Uh, Eleven. Um, how, how did you feel about making that, that uh, decision to focus on soccer at 11? Well, like I said, baseball, as much as I had a, an an affinity to it. I'd like to love to play. And I thought I was a pretty good player. And it was a sport my dad grew up with and knew and was very close to his heart. It just wasn't for me, there just wasn't enough, uh, in the game for me to, to stay, I don't know, focused or concentrated. And 
a lot of my best friends weren't playing it either. They were playing soccer, and those those guys happened to be on my team, and I enjoyed being around that a lot more. Um, it seems like you know um, we we give talks at, with Positive Coaching Alliance to parents all over the country, and and one of the the key issues I would say maybe the issue that comes up most is uh, pressure to specialize. Um, that when whenever a kid shows some talent in a sport, um, the Sometimes the parent himself, but often a coach will say, oh, like as yours did. Um, and I always say, you know, if a kid, uh, you know, wants to specialize, if it comes from him or her, that's great. But if it's coming from outside, um, it's a problem. What, what it, it seems like yours, you know, the initiation or initial impetus came from a coach, but that you made the decision yourself. Yeah, I, I did. I mean, there was, we had some talks at my house with my parents about what I wanted to do, and obviously uh, with my dad in particular, because baseball was something he knew all about. But I will uh, say, and I almost forget about this because it's so long ago, that I did end up going back to baseball uh, a few years later. Uh, I played when I was 15 and just played one season. You know, I kind of had the itch to maybe try something different, getting a little burned out on soccer and and didn't tell my soccer coach. At that point, I just wanted to give it a go. It wasn't going to affect anything or uh, anything with the soccer. I kept, kept with the soccer, but I played baseball as well. And it was fun to be back, but I think it made me appreciate how much more I did enjoy uh, kicking the ball around. Yeah, yeah. Um, what advice do you have for parents across the country or athletes who are, um, you know, they're, they're trying to make the same decision you made? Um, you know, maybe they've got some talent in one or maybe both sports. Um, you know, what, what should they think about when they make a decision about to specialize? Well, I wouldn't make it absolute. You know, I don't think that's fair to the kid, um, you know, because after a year of, of giving it everything you have uh, in one sport, let's say soccer, and you still have that inkling to, to go back and do baseball, then, then you should try that too. I, I don't think there has to be this, this hardcore uh, answer or that, well, one, you have to pick this one thing, you have to do it for the rest of your life. I don't, I don't think that's fair, and, and especially to the kid who's still just trying to figure things out. And when you do make that decision, I've learned, uh, I have a lot of younger brothers who've gone through this process as well, the things, especially soccer, when I was playing, it was maybe two or three days a week that we would practice. And now there's this expectation that the kids need to play four days a week, and then they have two games on the weekend, and they're just eating, drinking, and sleeping it whether they like it or not. It's not because they want to. And so there was a lot of free time for me in there to explore the game for myself and, and go play um, with my friends and go create and figure out and solve problems on the field without any coaching, without any parents, and just play because I love to play. And I think we're losing that a little bit here in the States because I run a soccer camp in Southern California where I grew up in Temple City. And 95% of the kids who are at this camp only play soccer when they're told to play soccer. They don't play because they love it, because they just want to go out and kick the ball and it just speaks to them. And so that's where I think the other countries when you think about Brazil and, and Argentina and South America and, and primarily everywhere in Europe, they have all those kids go out and play on their own and they figure out and solve problems on their own. And that is, um, that is where I think somehow America has to figure out to give those kids an opportunity to play on a playground and have fun and enjoy it as opposed to being told what to do all the time. And I know some people can be really good in a sport without loving it, but most people really have to love that sport. And if you, uh, it seems like if you drive that out of the kid by, by um, too much practice, too much of one sport, uh, it's unlikely they're going to reach their potential. 
Agreed. Uh, I think one of the big turning points for me was I was 15 and I made the U16 state team in Southern California, which was a pretty big deal. Um, and I just I happened to play well for those couple of days and, and didn't play with any pressure or put any pressure on myself. Just, just I wanted to compete against the best players in the area and prove that I could, whether I made the team or not, but at least prove to myself that I could hang with those guys. And around that same time, I ran into Louis Balboa, who is the dad of former U.S. men's national team player Marcelo Balboa, who has the goatee and the long hair. And it's pretty much, uh, if you ever need to look up, ever think about a player, he's the only guy with the goatee and long hair. And I ran into his dad. He, his, our club coach came and brought him over and said, hey, Louis, can you talk to the kids? And you could tell Louis was put on the spot, like, oh, man, what do I say? And so our club coach was like, hey, let's, let's, uh, you guys want to ask any questions? And so we, one of our questions, I didn't ask it, was how did Marcelo Balboa make the national team? And he simply said that he went out and kicked the ball by himself at a park for an hour a day or two hours a day or whatever it was. And I thought to myself sitting there, I knew right then I could be in control of that. Like if I wanted to be that good and that's, that's all I had to do was go to the park and kick the ball, then that was a real groundbreaking thing for me because that was something I could control. And I wasn't at the mercy of anybody else telling me I was good or I wasn't good or a coach being subjective and saying, well, I like this, but not that, or blah, blah, blah. So I went and I tried it. And I went to my school. That was this little school that was nearby my house. And I kicked the ball against the wall. And it was like pulling teeth. I was terrible. I mean, so many little things that I couldn't do. I, would, I, I put an X on the wall with chalk or tape. And I would just try to hit the same spot every time with my left or right foot. And I was so bad that after 15 minutes, I, I quit and gave up. And, and I did that for a week. I'm like, I just kept forcing myself to go out because I wanted to stay home and play video games and hang out with my buddies and, you know, go to 7-Eleven and get Slurpees and all that good stuff. But I kept thinking about what Louie had said about, you know, just an hour a day. And I'm like, well, I want to play for the national team. That would be really neat. And so I kept going. And that 15 minutes ended up turning into 30 minutes. And that 30 minutes turned into 45. And then it turned into my mom looking for me when it was dark. Like, where are you? What's, what's your problem? You know? And I could tell that I was getting better than my teammates. Um, and that things were becoming a lot easier for me. And then I would go and try to work on something else about my game. I'd ask my coach, hey, you know, what am I not – what do you think I'm not good at? And then once he told me what I wasn't good at, I made that a, tried to make that a strength. And so it became this, this, this game almost to see how, much, how good I could get. Um, and then obviously along the way, as I climbed the ladder, and then, you know, you said my story at the top. Uh, you know, I, I barely got any money to go to San Diego State. I transferred to UCLA, and it was a walk-on. I didn't get drafted in MLS. So all these things, always I had this chip on my shoulder, like, well, I'll just show them. You know, I know how, I know how to do it. I know how to deal with adversity. I know how to not start, uh, sit on the bench and not and be told you're not good enough, which I've heard from coaches, and continue to fight through it and prove them wrong. And, and I think my career is a reflection of that. I mean, making the World Cup team and then playing and holding my own against some of the best in the world is something I always take a lot of pride in. You know, what strikes me, a lot of people are going to hear this, uh, this interview, um, and you, it's, what strikes me is you're going to function the way Louis Balboa did to you. People are gonna, kids are going to hear this, and they're going to say, wow. I love that idea of control. You're in control of how good you get, not, not somebody else. Right, and that was something that uh, once you get it and understand that, I was off to the races. And then it ended up uh, infecting the different parts of my game, and even me as a person, because if, if you learn, like, okay, well, I need to be more fit, well, then I just started running more, you know, and then you figure out, as you start asking the right questions to the right people, 
well, you should try this kind of running or you should try this kind of sprinting. You should try this kind of balance. And it all starts to play in and all of a sudden you start to get better and better and better. And uh, it's a really neat feeling and, and, and fun to see that all this hard work when nobody is watching uh, pays off when everybody is watching when you're on the field. So uh, it's, it's pretty incredible. And then that said, I feel like I became a better student as well. Uh, I think my mom could attest that I became a better son um, because I just started taking a little bit more control and responsibility for my actions. And, you know, maybe that's right around the time that happens for everybody. But um, for me, I knew then that, that soccer was just kind of what it was at the time. And I had control of that and my performance and how, how I did and how good I got. But it could have been anything. You know, if I wanted to become a doctor and that was something I was focused on, then I, I know in my heart I could have been, become a doctor because I knew then what it was going to take to make it happen. You know, um, I just wrote down a quote you said, which I think I'm going to use a lot. All this hard work when no one was watching paid off when everyone was watching. What a great... Uh, you know, what strikes me, we, we talk about encouraging kids. We, we tell them, you know, if you're going to be really great, you need to have a teachable spirit. You need to be like a sponge. And that's what strikes me is you're asking... Um, you're asking your coach, like, what, what, what do I need to work on? Wow, what a great, uh, uh, great example. And, and that puts you in control rather than the coach telling you, hey, you're not any good at this. You're going to the coach saying, hey, what, what do I need to get better at? And that took years. I mean, because you have to overcome the fear of somebody telling you you're not good enough. Uh, and that's probably, as a, as a child, the worst thing you could hear. Um, and since I had made a decision that soccer was something I wanted to explore, and to see how far I could take it. Um, there was a lot of those along the way, but it just became fuel for the fire. Was just one other person I added to the list that I was going to prove wrong, and, and uh, I'm happy to say that I did that on, on quite a few occasions. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. You know, one thing you said that really uh, struck me was that you felt like this, this uh, bleeded over to um, school and, and you know, family. You were, you were better at school. You know, I was really surprised when I first read this many years ago now that that uh, kids typically don't transfer the lessons from sports to, to the rest of their life. And that one of the things we teach coaches, you know, responsible coaches who have two goals, winning, yes, but teaching life lessons, is you need to, you need to tell kids, hey, you know, you've worked really hard this week. You've gotten better at this. Um, what if you did that in your math class that <laughs> you're not doing so well in? Because kids need that. But it seems like you, um, you were able to make that transition when the research shows a lot of kids don't, it's like sports is totally separate. I think, I think it took me a while. I mean, I make this kind of sound like it all happened from age 11 to age 15, but this was a, a process that happened over many, many years. And, and one that I didn't always make do right. You know, I mean, if I give you an example of when my time with the U S men's national team with Bob Bradley, he was the head coach after Bruce Serena, Bruce Serena never paid any attention to me for the longest time. And then finally I got a chance to get in, into camp because somebody else got hurt. And when I went in, I knew this was it. This was like my world cup. I had three weeks to try to win these guys over. And clearly I did. And, and, and I played really well because that was it. I had worked so hard for that moment and I wasn't going to let it pass me by. But the next time around the next cycle of the world cup, Bob Bradley came in, who was basically the opposite of Bruce. And I, I completely misread him. Uh, you know, I'm a little bit more lighthearted and, and I take what I do very serious, but I don't take myself very serious. And he's serious 24 seven. And, um, we didn't hit it off and I never really figured out the right way to play him or the situation to make myself feel comfortable was on the, when I was on the field. There was a lot of times where I was just trying to do and please him. And I never played well because of that. And, and, um, and I think I actually do believe that I would have played in, in the 2010 world cup 
had I just kind of just played it a little bit different. And I know that makes it sound, we're kind of like at the phase six of, of being a player, but, but really I just wanted to highlight that I'm still made mistakes, even though I was at the, near the end of my career and, and still trying to learn about how to be the best player I could be. It's, it's a never ending process. So, um, so there's that. I'm going to just throw that out there for you. No, I, I, that's, that's really interesting. Cause I think, uh, there, there's so many examples in professional sports of, of someone who um, you know is in the wrong, in, on the wrong team and the wrong system with the wrong coach, and then they get traded, and all of a sudden, like wow, there's some potential there. And I think one of the lessons for for you know coaches who listen to this is uh, you probably got some kids playing for you with a lot of potential that you're not seeing just because of the way you see the world and the way they see the world. And no, that makes perfect sense. I don't think, like you mentioned, that winning is the end all be all, especially for development i think you know we have to teach so many fundamentals before the winning comes i don't even think you need to teach winning i think it's just inherent in all of us that we want to win of course we want to win so i I think it's funny when coaches uh start to harp on that you know like of course we all want to win nobody wants to make mistakes you know let's get that out of the way now let's just start teaching the fundamentals and the basics and then once we get the fundamentals and basics then we can get into the tactics uh, of the game but it's funny to me the coaches that go way above and beyond. Oh, we need to do this, that, and the other when the kids can't trap a ball. I mean, what's the point, you know? You know, we have a, uh, you, you mentioned pressure several times here and um, the, you know, the fear of making mistakes. How, how did you, um, you know, you mentioned one time you hit that, that uh, you know, for the U16 team, you were only 15 and probably not many expectations there. So, um, but there are other places where you did have expectations. How do you deal with pressure when you really want something badly, like to make the, the national team for the World Cup, et cetera? There are little things along the way that I, that I did in terms of handling pressure. Uh, I think I was, or I, I don't even say think, I know I was hard, the hardest on me. I was hard, excuse me, harder on myself than, than anybody else could have been. And that kind of pushed me to get to where I wanted to go. But, you know, anytime you had a lot of people watching. I remember playing in this tournament down in Southern California as a surf cup. And my coach told me, Hey, there's a ton of college scouts out here. And I had the worst game ever. I had a stomach ache. I needed an energy bar. Then I ate the energy bar. And then, uh, then I felt sick. And then I felt like my shoes weren't tied, tied enough. You know, any excuse I could come up with to explain my bad performance, uh, I did. And I had it and it somehow validated it. And I kind of moved on, but no coach wanted to touch me. Uh, I didn't have a good performance, and, and I think they were out there specifically to watch me and maybe four or five other guys, and I did nothing to warrant their attention, so I, I get it. But, you know, you learn from those 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 moments, and you learn from those disappointments, and, and I think that only fueled me to continue to try to get better behind the scenes so that I could always be kind of in control of, oh, like they tell you, uh, you can only control two things, that's your attitude and your performance, and so you know, through a lot of those tough moments, uh, you, you kind of get to that, that point. Now, I, like I said, I think I really didn't start to come into my own until I was about 26 or 27, where I was just, this is me, this is who I am, and take it or leave it. And I started to play with that kind of confidence. But for a long time, I was a little unsure of myself, even in the pros. I, I was never good enough, and I was just, you know, I was happy to be there, but at the same time, I was getting to the point where I needed to to pick up my game if I really wanted to go somewhere and be the player that I knew I could be. Yeah, wow, that's that's fantastic. You know, um, at UCLA, you played for Ziggy Schmidt, um, and I actually interviewed him uh, a year or so ago as part of this series. 
what was it like being coached by him? And did, did you learn things beyond, uh, beyond the pitch from him? I did. I did. Ziggy uh, is a great coach. He's got a great history, both in college and pros. Very successful. Um, I think what I love about Ziggy is that he is flexible and he learns from his team, you know, what kind of coach he needs to be. You know, some players need a little bit more attention. Some you just need to tell them one or two things and they can get on with it. And I think he's gotten better at that along the way. Um, I did learn a lot. And I think I appreciated him more once I wasn't being coached by him. Once I went to the A-League and got coached by guys who don't have the pedigree that he did or, or the experience. And I had to figure out real quick that I, was, I basically had to coach myself, you know, that I had to go back and get my own tapes and, and evaluate myself. And I ultimately think all that helped uh, help me become the best or become the player that I was going to be. You know, um, you mentioned about the other seniors being drafted and you not. Um, you talked a little bit about, you know, creating a list of people you want to show that you could do it. But how, that must have been really hard at that moment. How did you handle it? And were there people who really gave you support to get through that? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I, uh, my mom and my dad and my stepdad were all very positive uh, my siblings were pretty young, and I had some friends too, old club coaches that would kind of keep me pointed in the right direction. But it got to the point where I got out of college, and I still wanted to play. And my mom said, I was living at home, and my mom said, listen, you got to find a job. You know, if you're going to live under our house now, you're old enough, you have to start paying rent. I said, Mom, honestly, just give me nine months to see this thing out. Um, if I If I can make it or land somewhere, then then great. But if not, then, then I'll go get a job and I'll get on with it. And so they talked for a while. Um, and they decided to give me the nine months to really just devote full time, to see if I could make it onto a team. And I was at that point, hadn't signed with San Diego in the A-League. I was with the LA Galaxy, uh, training with the LA Galaxy. Ziggy had set that up. I think Ziggy felt bad that I was one of the guys that didn't, or his only senior that didn't get drafted. And so he set up this thing with the Galaxy. I went and I played well. I was 20 at the time. And I actually got invited to the preseason camp. Like I played so well in a week outside of the Rose Bowl before they went to the preseason camp in Florida that they said, yeah, you're in. The assistant coach Ralph Perez came up to me and he said, yeah, you know, get your stuff, tell your parents, tell your friends, you're going to go with us to Florida. I said, great. So I go inside the locker room and I get my bag of stuff, my polo. I mean, I could, I was ecstatic over the moon. Couldn't believe it. And one of my teammates at UCLA, Matt Reese, I got drafted goalkeeper he got drafted to the galaxy so he was there and we were living at ucla at the time when this all went down i'm kind of crossing two stories here um so that my mom's story where she was going to kick me out of the house yeah that's going to be after this so um so we're living at ucla at the time and matt reese left left the locker room and went back and told everybody that we were um that i got that i made it and that i was going to go so as i'm leaving the locker room about probably 30 minutes after Matt uh, had left, I get pulled aside by Octavio Zambrano, the coach, and he's like, hey, come into my office. I go into his office, and he says, you need to leave your bag and your stuff here because uh, we haven't decided yet if you can go or not. And I said, okay. You know, it sounded pretty positive. He's like, hey, call me at 6, 6 p.m., and I'll let you know. Or, no, we'll call you at 6 p.m., and I'll let you know. I said, Perfect. No problem. So six, I'm now, I'm now I'm back at UCLA with all my friends. Everybody's giving me high fives, pumping me up, all excited. And I haven't told anybody that, that, that this has happened. So I'm waiting by the phone. This is before cell phones. And 
that's how old I am. <clears throat> anyway, so at 6 p.m. comes no phone call. So 7 p.m. comes, and I'm like sweating now. And I call, I call. So I call Ralph Perez or their office, and they pick up the phone. Octavio is the guy that ended up answering. He's like, no, nope. no, you're not going to go. We'll see you in two weeks when we get back. And that was it. I hung up the phone and was crushed. I mean, I'm pretty sure I cried. I, I think I tried to block that out, but I'm pretty sure I shed some tears. It was up, and I had now had to face the music of all my peers that I actually wasn't going, even though. They, and so it was a really tough time for me. And again, that was another moment where I had to decide: Is this something I really want to do? You know, is I'm going to continue to get hit and kicked and told I'm not good enough? Uh, you know, is this it, or do I just want to go back and do something else? And so from that point on, that's when I moved to my back home to my mom. And she said, gave me the ultimatum. I said, listen, just give me nine months. So I stayed with the Galaxy for a little bit. And they said, hey, why don't you join us, um, join our minor league team. At that point, they had partnerships with minor league teams. So I joined San Diego. And Octavio, Mr. Octavio Zambrano, said, hey, we'll call you up in August. No problem. Guarantee if you're going to come up, you'll join us. Everything will be great. Never called. And so obviously, Octavio Zambrano was, got higher and higher up my list of, of to prove, people to prove wrong. Um, and... So that was it. I went to San Diego and ended up doing really well down there. And uh, to tie this whole story up, I got an offer, a contract offer from San Jose before the 1999 season. And once L.A. heard that San Jose was offering me a contract, they decided to offer me a contract too. And I thought, man, I could play in front of my friends and family at the Rose Bowl, blah, blah, blah. But I just couldn't do it. I could never play for Octavio Zambrano. And so I signed with San Jose, and then the rest is history. Wow. <laughs> what a story. You know, um, when I was coaching basketball, uh, young kids many years ago, um, I somehow came up with this acronym, DIMMIT. Uh, DIMMIT is de determination is more important than talent. Um, and boy, you seem to exemplify that. I cannot believe <laughs> I just didn't like when some people told me I wasn't very good. Like, who were they to tell me that I wasn't very good? You That's know right. I mean? Some of the guys that told me that couldn't even kick a ball. So... You know, how, who are they to rate me? So that's, you can see my anger still come out of me a little bit, but, but I always took that really personal. Like, who are you to tell me that I can or can't do something? So, I just think this is really inspiring. I mean, so, so, many, uh, so many kids are told by, uh, you know, either directly or uh, indirectly by coaches they're not good enough. And, um, boy, just... Um, I'm, I'm impressed. Thanks for sharing all that. Oh, no problem. I have a whole bunch of those. I'm, I have more of those than I probably want to admit. <laughs> so, um, you, you know, after all this, um, you are five-time MLS All-Star, Defender of the Year, a champion, uh, represented the U.S. on the men's national team, and then you actually had the opportunity to captain the national team. Um, I'd, I'd love to have you talk about your thoughts, uh, your approach to being the captain of the, the team, uh, that leadership role. It's, it's, it was such a special moment for me. I just wanted to just take a few breaths and really enjoy it. We had run into a coach, Clive Charles, who was in Portland. Um, and before we had embarked on this World Cup stuff, they showed a video of him. He had, had recently passed away at that time. But they had taken this video before that. And he said, you know, when you get there, when you get to these moments, you just have to take a deep breath and look around and really enjoy the surroundings, the atmosphere, and really soak it in. Smell the grass, uh, take a look, make eye contact with a teammate, whatever it is, because those, those are the things you're going to remember. And he was right. And I remember doing that a few times, specifically in this game where I was captain. I looked down at the armband, looked at the referees, looked at my opponent, and just took a picture, a mental picture with my head, and that's never gone away. And it's something I can always reflect on and think, yeah, I was somebody way back when, you know. So 
that uh, was a really cool feeling. And, and to answer your question directly about the leadership thing, uh, it gave me more of a voice to know that the decisions I was making uh, were the right ones and that I should have complete confidence in myself because the coaching staff does too. And uh, that just emboldened me to continue to do the things that I was doing and, and to lean on the things I was thinking about when, when I was doing all that hard work when no one was watching. And, and it's all kind of tied in together, and, and it made those moments super special. And I actually remember when I would go back, uh, there was this one hill in Pasadena called uh, Arbor Street. It's like 300 yards up, and we used to run it, and I went by myself. Usually nobody goes by yourself because it's, it's so painful and brutal. But I remember thinking the captain of the national team would do this. <laughs> he would go and do this by himself. And so I went out there and ran it by myself. And, and, but those are the things I was thinking about. Um, a couple, couple last questions. This is, this is really fun, Jimmy. Um, you, you've coached at a lot of different levels. Um, what level do you enjoy coaching most and why? And uh, any specific advice for youth, youth soccer coaches? Yes. Uh, I think I touched upon one of my answers. I do enjoy coaching uh, younger kids because they're sponges and they want to learn so much. I think as the kids get older, they become a little bit more jaded. They have an idea of how they should play or how they want to play or whatever YouTube clips they've seen of Messi and how they think they can do it just like him. And, and in, in moments they can, but there's so much more to the game than dribbling and, and taking people on. And, and you know, um, so I, I think the age group would be probably from 8 to 12 where I, I really enjoy the kids. I think uh, I don't – I wish I had a team now, but I don't, and so I just run my, my soccer camp, so I get a little taste of it just to keep me uh, – uh, quench my thirst for coaching, but my advice for coaches is something I had said earlier, which is you got to give them some free time to think for themselves. You have to, you can give, you can plant these seeds in them, but if you don't allow them to, to solve problems on the field, whether that's going forward or, or going back, right? Cause the game is very simple. You want to score more goals than the other team. You don't want to give up uh, as many goals as the other team, right? You just don't want to give up any goals. Um, and kids need to figure out a way to explore that. And I think there's a way where you could just have a one um, day of just free play and let them play. I, I, there's ways you can put restrictions on it. You can do 2v2 games. Um, you can put, you know, 2v2 is really interesting because you have to play both ways. You can't hide. As obviously the numbers grow, you can hide a little bit. But then it becomes more complex about how to break down teams. So it just depends on what you want to do. You can go 5v5 to big goals, whatever you want to do. I think as a coach you can you can – manipulate the size of the field and and the number of players but outside of that i would let the kids solve problems for themselves and not say anything just let them solve let them compete let them do whatever and i think you'll learn a lot about your players because of that last question um what can parents do to support their kids who uh, are playing soccer great question i think the best thing to do is to make sure that the kids are having fun my dad was always very clear did you have fun today it was always his first thing um, you know, for me, especially as I got older, well, I want to talk about, you know, the play or this play or I didn't do this right. And I'm usually, I tend to go negative before positive, And I think most people do that. And uh, he's like, but did you have fun? You know, so then we just talk about some fun moments that I had. And so I thought he'd always did a really good job of that, especially since he didn't have a very good idea of, about the game. I uh, didn't know much about it. And I think that was his way to to make sure we, him and I were having a, a real conversation about the game itself as, as opposed to uh, the, t the tiny details that, you know, maybe matter to my coach, and that's something for the coach and I had to discuss, but didn't really matter 
uh, to my dad because he didn't know those, those tiny details. So that was his way to, to figure out how to have a meaningful conversation about what had just happened. So that was very important. Um, I have two young daughters now, and one of which is five. She's the oldest, and, and we're, she's starting to play soccer now. And, and we both, of, both my wife and I make sure that we say that, you know, but did you have fun? Because she's doing the same things that I did. Well, we didn't do this, and I didn't do You know, I'm like, oh, gee, stop. Did you have fun with your <laughs> friends? You know, because I want her to, I want to plant that seed of, of enjoyment for what she's doing. And it doesn't necessarily have to be soccer. It can be uh, in whatever she's doing. We, we always ask the same question. But um, I, I think that would be first and foremost to tell parents. And then second, I know this is a hard thing, is to hey, let the coaches coach, you know, and, and be obviously paying him to do, to do that. And as hard as it is for me to watch these guys coach my five-year-old right now, and I'm thinking, oh, man, I would do X, Y, and Z, you know, that's what they're, that's what they're doing. That's their job. And, and as long as she comes back and has a smile on her face, then there's not much more I can ask for, especially at her age. Jimmy, this has uh, been fantastic. You know, I loved your, um, your, uh, the question parents should ask, did you have fun today? And I can absolutely say I had fun uh, interviewing you today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jim. I really appreciate your time. To learn more about responsible sports, including downloading valuable tools on a mastery approach to youth sports that includes creating a commitment to learning, visit ResponsibleSports.com. You'll find helpful responsible sport parenting and responsible coaching guides, downloadable tools and worksheets, and advice from leading youth sports experts. Music for this podcast has been generously provided by APM Music.